Seated. Uh, we continue our study in the Gospel of John here in the upper room. We are with the Lord in prayer in John chapter 17. The last few weeks we've studied this and I've read the whole chapter. I'm going to read the whole prayer again to you this week, hoping that these things will again settle into your mind and that you will more and more meditate upon these phrases and uh, petitions of our Lord in prayer. From John chapter 17, we read, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone. This is the passage for today but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let us pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, as we have read this word, we pray for now for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to open our hearts to it. We would be fully devoted to such a word, that your word is truth, with hearts and minds set apart to your purposes. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable now in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Being at the Liberty graduation yesterday, it made me remember an interesting uh, story of Kevin Roos, a college student at Brown University, who says of himself that he had the ultimate secular liberal upbringing. But while he was a student at Brown, he met a, um, a group of students from Liberty University. And he says, I've never really come into contact with conservative Christian culture. Not at Brown, not where he's from. He said, it became clear very quickly that we had almost no way to communicate with each other. So it gave him the idea. He, he wanted to go undercover for a semester at Liberty. Pretend to be a Christian and fit in. He says, my goal was to see the real, unfiltered life at Liberty University. He said, I don't know, I didn't know what to expect. The only thing I knew from, about conservative Christianity was based on my very slim exposure to it in the media. I expected I'd get there and people would be caricatures of placard-waving, angry ideologues. And this is not what I found at all. I had to do a lot of adjusting. I loved the people I met there. I think they are some of the nicest, most genuine college students in America. They still to this day call me, text me, Facebook message me, and we're good friends. He wrote a book as a result of his semester. That was the purpose after all. He was ambitious. He's now writing for the New York Times. But he says, my book is full of things I liked about liberty, their emphasis on community, the sense that this is the body of Christ, and they're all in this together. In the secular world and secular colleges, we try to build up a spirit of individuality, and that's great, but there's something about the group experience, he writes. But once the semester is over, he had the um, difficult job of coming clean with his new friends about who he really was and why he'd come. He said, it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done because they had become some of my best friends. He says he expected them to feel betrayed and he expected to do quite a lot of apologizing. Instead, he says, something amazing happened. Quote, everyone forgave me immediately. It was unreal. 
how quickly there's surprise. Turn to real compassion and excitement. They were all excited about the book I wanted to write and excited that I'd given Liberty a fair look and an open-minded look instead of just doing a drive-by article. He says his friends did confess a little disappointment. They thought, given the semester with me, that they would have done a better job of converting me. (laughs) Roos says, I wasn't convinced that the Bible is inerrant and that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but I did find myself really pulled to evangelicals' faith, and I did start reading the Bible on my own without it being mandatory for a class. I still read the Bible, and I still pray. I go to church once in a while. It's not a regular part of my life, but when I do it, I really enjoy myself. So I'm not scared of faith in the way I used to be. It doesn't bother me. And I'm still, to some extent, trying to piece together my own worldview. In a survey of 750 Muslims who have come to Christ, they did a survey of people from 30 countries, from 50 ethnic groups, in-depth interview. The number one reason cited for why they chose to follow the Lord, they had to put their finger on it, was this. Number one, the lifestyle of Christians. Report says former Muslims cited that love, that the love that Christians exhibited in their relationships with non-Christians and the treatment of women as equals. Number one. To round out the top five, they, uh, they, uh, the, the top five also included number three, dissatisfaction with the type of Islam they'd experienced. Many expressed dissatisfaction, the article says, with the Quran emphasizing God's punishment over his love. Others cited Islamic militancy and the failure of Islamic law to transform society. And number five, biblical teachings about the love of God. In the Quran, it says, God's love is conditional, but God's love for all people was especially eye-opening for Muslims. These converts were moved by the love expressed through the life and teachings of Jesus. And the next step for many Muslims was to become part of a fellowship of loving Christians. Well, I don't need to read you such surveys and testimonies. If we had time, we could spend the rest of our time here, each giving our own similar testimony as so many of us have found the same thing. That our Lord's prayer has been fulfilled in flesh and blood. That his people are marked by such a loving unity by which the world may come to know that the Father has sent him and believe in him. This is the longest prayer in the New Testament, and it's as deep as it is wide. It does not focus on a single country or continent even, but upon the whole world. It is not for one generation, but encompasses the whole of this age until the Lord's return. It does not involve only a few churches, but the whole body of Christ, every Christian who has ever lived or ever will live. In a very sense, these verses and petitions are a key to history, the blueprints of God's program for this world, for this age. It brings together the great marks of the church, as Jim Boyce pointed out to me. 
What marks are those? Well, in the passage, joy, holiness, truth, mission, unity, and in all of these, love. Joy is the mark of the Christian with respect to himself. Holiness is the mark of his relationship to God, truth, the relationship to God's word, mission, the mark of his relationship to the world, unity, the mark of his relationship to the church, and the last love, the supreme virtue, finishes the list and also grounds them all because you take love away from joy and you end up with just selfish pleasure-seeking or take love from holiness and the result is self-righteousness. You take love from truth the result is a hard and a cold orthodoxy that persuades no one. You take love from mission, and you have conquest or colonialism. You take love from unity, and you have nothing but a cult, a cultish tyranny. Today, we cover the final section of the prayer where the emphasis is on a loving unity. And let me make one more preparatory comment as we begin, since this prayer is broken up into headings in many of the Bibles, which you perhaps hold. You might notice, for example, it says something like, verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And then, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. Well, uh, that's fine. Uh, that is a shift in emphasis here, but it would be a great mistake to conclude that the previous part we studied only applied to those disciples then, and verses 20 through 26 only applies to us now. That God only wanted them to be sanctified and preserved, and he only wants us to be loving and unified. No, no, no. You notice how this whole prayer is joined together and the petitions are repeated and joined together for emphasis. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men you gave him, given me. At the end, verse 26, I have declared to them your name. Uh, verse 7, now they have known all things which are from you and you've given me. Verse 25, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, uh, and so forth. This is standard ancient rhetoric, the inclusio moving together. So, binding the section together, end of verse 11, that they may be one as we are one, in the first part, verse 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, and me, and I, and you. So, that's why I wanted to read the whole prayer to you again and again. This whole part from verses 6 through 26 is for all of God's disciples in the world, then as now. So, we come to a new part of the prayer it's not so much a shift in audience as it is now a shift in emphasis as the burden of these verses is loving unity. Jesus emphasizes that unity three times in verses 21, 22, and 23. You notice 21, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Again, verse 22, and the glory you gave me, I've given them that they may be one just as we are one. And again, verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and so forth. Well, let's consider then three points from our passage, as the Lord teaches us first that we are to have a divine unity, second, that we are to have a loving unity, and third, that we are to have a powerful unity it's our outline for today. First, that we are to have a divine unity. 
a divine unity. You see the emphasis of the passage, I in them, you in me. That is to say, the basis of our unity right here is not social interest, status, background, that we are naturally drawn to each other. That is not the case. Indeed, a very common experience in the church is for people to feel out of place. That perhaps they don't really belong here. That's because, in worldly terms, you don't really belong here. You would not be together here if it weren't for Christ. For what we have in common in him is far greater than what might otherwise divide us. I and them, he says. You and me, Father, that they may be made perfect in one. Ours is a supernatural, a divine unity. Christian unity that participates in the unity that exists between Father and Son. A, a unity of being, of life itself, surely and of love and of purpose, emphasized here, sustained by the indwelling, the mutual indwelling of Father and Son, and in us by the Spirit. All being united to God, we are united to each other. Maybe you've heard the old illustration of the, the spokes of the wheel, that as they get closer to the hub, they also get closer together. Well, that's just it. So are we in Christ. We are all united to God, so we are all united to each other. Uh, you can look at our children. Each one is different, but they all form one family, and they all bear the likeness of the same Father. So are we in Christ. So I say, the common experience, I'm sure you have felt it. I don't belong. I don't belong. When we focus on ourselves, we feel we don't belong. When we focus on Christ, we realize that we are much closer to these people than even our own flesh and blood that don't know the Lord. And so, if you think about it long enough, you will surely be able to say, it's hard for me to be the only one who blank. Everyone else blank. You fill it in. I'm sure you've already done so. You can always find something that will substantially separate you from everyone else. You focus on that, it's going to drive you apart. You focus on Christ, it will bring us all to him and to us both. And so it's very important to realize that God is not bringing together people who are the same. That's not what he is out for. You might find that in a social club. You will not find that in the church by God's own design. And even if God were to bring together all the people that are the same, well, what would that say to the world? <laughs> you don't belong here. The Lord, therefore, very intentionally brings together strange people like you. Even the worst people in the world share a kind of unity with people who are not, with people who are exactly like them. The worst people in the world like people who are exactly like them. That's not the kind of unity we have. We have supernatural unity. Here are these original disciples. We, we find a, a, a strange mixture. We have people, for example, from the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Uh, one taken from the tax collectors who worked for the Romans to sell out their brothers. 
other, another from the zealots who used to assassinate those kind of traitors. One of each brought together in the Savior's little band. Or you might remember the uh, members of the church in Philippi that I pointed out to you recently, how the church started as God brought together. Do you remember the original members of that church? Who were the charter members of the church at Philippi, the people that, got, that were brought together by God on that short trip? Here's a wealthy Jewish, apparently single businesswoman, a hard pagan jailer and his family, and a slave girl who formerly made her money fortune-telling. Can you imagine a more unlikely group of people to be brought together from that city? It's, it's remarkable. Those are the ones the Lord picked. And can you notice even the differences of their conversion? You know, sometimes you're like, well, I didn't have the experience like so-and-so. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I didn't have the hour I first believed. <sighs> okay. You remember in Philippi, how the Lord brought together this unlikely group with different conversions. Lydia had been a devoted Jew for years, apparently, and God opened her heart by a peaceful stream one day as she met some other Jewish women for prayer. That slave girl didn't have her heart opened nearly so gently. She was out of the streets with no knowledge of the true God until some missionaries showed up and cast out a demon from her, and there was some disturbance. Uh, the jailers suddenly awakened by a powerful earthquake when he opened, when the prison door was opened and he was ready to fall on his sword and avoid the humiliation and his perhaps painful execution for losing his prisoners. In the middle of the night, at a moment of extreme crisis, he heard the word of the Lord and was saved. And, you know, it's foolish to say, oh, I, I wish I had the earthquake or I wish I wasn't converted in a moment of excitement and emotion? How do I know it was real, right? We, we, you know, we, we can go around and around about these things. I wish, I wish I was born in this kind of home. I wish I had this kind of conversion. It's just foolish. The Lord is bringing together such a diversity. And isn't it interesting that he picked such people from very different areas of society with very different conversions to form the nucleus of the infant church? And then what happened? Did Lydia start a seeker church for yuppie business people? Did the slave girl start a hipster church for former spiritists and street people? Did the jailer found the first Salvation Army chapel? No slight intended? Not at all. These were intended to come together to be God's family at Philippi, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. This was the design, the purpose of God. They were chosen not only to enjoy, but to demonstrate a supernatural unity to the world where there would be here neither Jew nor Greek, as it's written, neither slave nor free, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. All is Christ. Christ is all and in all. That was the goal. Do you believe in election? Here's one important implication of the doctrine of election. We have been called together by a God to love people whom he chose, with whom we might otherwise not find ourselves having that much in common. But just as in our families growing up, we didn't get to choose our other family members. Some of you regret that. So it is in the family of God. I say again, we then must focus on Christ and on this supernatural unity. And then we will realize just how much we have together shared, and we will share forever, and commit ourselves to love the children of God whom he has chosen by his grace. He didn't choose them because they were necessarily like you or easy. 
but he did do it to demonstrate to the world a supernatural unity, not a, not a normal one, not a social, not a comfortable one, but deeper and real. Uh, the Lord joins this supernatural unity together with a supernatural love, our second point. We are to have a loving unity, a loving unity. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. We receive the love in order that we may give it. Uh, verse 26, I've declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. It is not just unity in general, but the loving unity that we have received from God that we are now to enjoy with each other. So, you know, a bride and a groom, they come together in marriage and there is a unity. The Lord himself says, for this reason, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let, let not man separate. Okay? There is a unity. God has made one flesh. He has brought them together. What God has joined, let no man separate. A profound unity. But, as you misters and misses well know, that unity that God has made, a supernatural unity of sorts, comes also with not only vows of love, but then a, a whole married life of daily commitment toward oneness, open communication, bearing your souls, spending time together, working at the marriage, growing together in Christ, etc. You have a unity, and you are to have a loving unity. A loving unity to be enjoyed, a love, and we are to be loving unity in the church as well. It's the same in the church. I read about this family that went to the movies. On the way in, the son stopped at the refreshment stand in order to pick up some popcorn. By the time the boy got into the theater, the lights were already dim, and he couldn't find his family he paced up and down the aisles in near darkness. He was peering down each row. And finally, in desperation, he asked out loud, Does anyone here recognize me? <laughs> there are some people who come in the church and they feel like that young man. They feel alone, isolated, disconnected from everyone. Deep down, they're silently crying out, Does anyone recognize me? Does anyone even know that I'm here? The church is not to be like a theater where you file in and find a seat next to folks with whom you have no relationship, watch the performance, and file out. Absolutely not. It's a family of love. Some of you are rushing home to be with a family today. Well, I certainly understand that. I hope that the rest of the time that you will be able to stay and enjoy the other family that you have, and that from God himself, as I thank again those who stay late and close up an hour and a half after church sometimes, right? That a weary doorkeeper is the sign of a healthy church, because our unity is not just a unity of, what, worshipers, attenders, 
but a worship that is joined together by a loving unity in a family. Therefore, Christ prays that the very love with which the Father loved the Son may be in us, and he in us, that it is Christ that lives in us. The same idea here, just as Christ lived in Paul, who wrote those words, and Paul feels about the church in the same way that Christ does for the same reasons, that when he longed for them, we read, he was only following the impulses of the Christ that dwelt in him and the love of Christ that was in him. He was not only thinking thoughts, Christ's thoughts after him, he was feeling Christ's emotions after him. And you don't really have to read the Bible very far to know that this is the way that we are commanded to feel about one another. Jesus said the same thing earlier, as, you, as I have loved you, so you love one another. Three times he repeated it. So remember, this love can be cultivated. Just as in a marriage, it can be nurtured, deepened, and purified on the one hand, or neglected on the other. It's a simple law. The more sharing in grace, the more common experience, the more mutual help and interest, the deeper the affection, the greater the pleasure we have in the brotherhood, and the more fervent our love for one another. We are to have a loving unity. And third and finally today, this loving unity is to come with great power to the world. Power to the world. The third point is we are to have a powerful unity. Again, verse 21, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That loving unity has the power to make not only real, but beautiful. The powerful word of Christ. So otherworldly, so supernatural in character is this unity that it powerfully testifies to a supernatural union and the reality of the Christian faith. Men and women, boys and girls, drawn together by a unity that surmounts obvious obstacles, obstacles that do keep people apart, if not at each other's throats in the world. This will be the proof that Christ was really the Son of God sent from the Father. I think it is remarkable. In the ancient world, the, uh, the, the, it was much more of a divided, class-conscious, race-conscious, um, even religious-conscious society. Uh, Jews would not visit in the homes of Gentiles, right? Um, slave and free. There was, there was a, a much greater division. Our world has benefited from the, the gospel in, in so many ways. It's, it's hard even to remember how many. It was a very powerful testimony when the early apologists said, you know, there are no divisions among us. We're all at the same table, right? We have testimonies, slaves, we're bishops in the church, elders in the church. Again and again in the book of Acts, Luke joins together this remarkable, loving unity 
with its power for witness, that the believers had remarkable care for one another. They supplied each other's needs, and daily in the temple, and daily from house to house, they broke their bread with gladness of heart. They shared their lives, and the Lord added daily to them such as were being saved. Again, chapter 4. Again, chapter 6. Chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Such was the beautiful unity of the people. We, we are often, brothers, sisters, we are often the only Bible that people will read. Francis Schaeffer was a, 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 a truly brilliant, remarkable apologist, but in his writing on love, the final apologetic, he puts it this way, the church is to judge whether a man is a Christian on the basis of his doctrine, the, priest, the, the propositional content of his faith, and the credible profession of that faith. But we cannot expect the world to judge that way because the world can know nothing about doctrine. That's especially true now when men no longer believe even in the possibility of absolute truth. And if we are surrounded by a world which no longer believes in the concept of truth, certainly we cannot expect people to have any interest in whether a man's doctrine is correct or not. But Jesus did give the mark that will arrest the attention of the world. Well, our Lord emphasizes here this power of a loving unity with one another. Or to make it more practical, let me give you an illustration of an email I just recently got from Mark Witte, one of our missionaries in Spain. Quote, Yesterday, our local newspaper interviewed Natalie, his wife, and a few of the refugee families. The reporter even wrote quite favorably of our church, ICP Toledo. Having many Ukrainians in and around the church has also attacked, uh, attracted the positive attention of some neighbors. One man who took two years before he'd even respond to my good morning began to warm up a few years ago when we had a VBS in the church. But now, hearing about the refugees and seeing us serve them, he initiates actual conversations and is very pleased that our church is helping them. End quote. Um, I talked to the director of SAT-7, the uh, satellite broadcast of which PAR-7 that we support and some other things is, uh, is a part, um, Christian satellite television, especially into the 1040 window. Uh, he's from the UK. He says, my, my little town in England, we, uh, we have a, a, a church there has 150 Iranian believers out of a population of about 250 in our town. I said, what in the world happened? <laughs> Tell me the story. He says, well, uh, some years ago, for whatever reason, this became a place for Iranian immigrants in the UK. They, they would come to our English town, otherwise pretty unremarkable, but here, but here they are. And, um, you know, uh, so, some folks said, uh, from the church said, um, we need to reach out to these folks and just have, have them over to our home. So they did in the afternoon. Uh, I think he said it was around you know, 2 o'clock. They'd have a regular, regular meeting in, in home. Um, dinner, a leisurely dinner, 
conversation with family, other Christians, some singing, some Bible study. And he says, all, all 250 Iranians in the town have, have, been, have visited our church, and 150 have joined. And their testimony was the same as the one I've just told you, that they were leaving behind not only a religion, but a community. And they found not only a religion of love, but a community of love. And it was the community that first attracted their attention. Now, as I said earlier, it's relatively easy to love folks who are just like you, have over folks who are just like you. But it's a very powerful testimony when the church shows Christ's love and demonstrates it across loves that divides the world, racial, cultural, generational, economic divides. In their day, that great divide between Jews and Gentiles was so powerful, and Paul emphasized that the glory of the church is that Christ has removed this barrier between these two groups and made them one for a Christian unity that not only transcends man-made boundaries of race and nationality and culture and leaps over painful divisions, but because of that in so many ways, when people see them loving, united, visiting, enjoying one another, when that is on display, the world, the world takes notice. In conclusion, we know that the early church also suffered from many divisions and strife. I mean, just a cursory reading of Paul's letters, for instance, makes it very clear. It wasn't only heresy, but we're reminded that too often churches are rent asunder, not by theological differences, but in effect selfishness, pride, a lack of love, often masquerades as theological precision under some guys. It's no surprise that in the midst of this discussion, for instance, on spiritual gifts, in his letter to the Corinthians, so divided among themselves, we find this famous love chapter and says, let me show you the more excellent way. In some theological disputes, you see the problem is not actually a question of spiritual gifts. It's just a lack of love. It's a lack of Christian charity. My brother-in-law is a minister in the OPC, in Charlotte. And uh, he does marriage counseling and, you know, the working through issues. But he says, you know, most of the time it's just one issue. It's just a lack of love. If people just had some more love, the issues would begin to resolve themselves. They could do it together. Just as people were drawn in by love, people were put off by lovelessness in the church. We can think of remarkable instances of loving unity that have blessed us. We can think of other instances which greatly gave us some difficulty. If you haven't felt that, hang around long enough, you will. And we need to realize in those moments that in the church, when we get our feelings hurt, when we're not treated well, when we are separated off, nobody like me, this is not just about us. It's not only a unity that we are to enjoy, it's that which we are to have for the sake of the world. You're probably familiar with the famous statue of the goddess Venus called the Venus de Milo, surely one of the most famous statues of all time. The experts in sculpting will tell you that the pose, the drapery of the figure, gives the Venus de Milo some strange, wonderful nobility. It's a masterpiece 
from which all the power that exudes from a great piece of art is on display. Many years ago, um, the Venus de Milo came into the hands of an unscrupulous art dealer in Venice. Although the statue had already become a matter of great public interest, uh, people had already been coming to see the statue from different places, and as time went on, as the statue's popularity grew and grew, uh, well, it was, it was said, the legend was, that it had the power to make any woman who touched it beautiful. And the Venetian art dealer realized he could benefit by exploiting the public's demand that people could own a small piece of the Venus. Women were coming from, on pilgrimages to view and to touch the Venus. They, owned, they, they yearned to, to own just a small chip of her marble, believing that they might, by such a possession, become beautiful themselves. So the art dealer hatched a plan. He would preserve the Venus in a plaster copy, and thereafter break the original Venus into thousands and thousands of small pieces, realizing the enormous profit that could be realized if everyone had their own part and that he could vastly exceed any sum that he would get from selling the whole by selling off the pieces. So here's the legend, which I don't believe is created to sell art, but here's the legend. He summoned workmen with sledges to appear at his shop where the Venus was previously on display. Break her up, men, he commanded. Break her to a thousand, thousand little pieces. And he raised his arm to give the single signal. And, according to the legend, just as his arm was about to fall, it was severed by an invisible sword. And the arm of the Venus de Milo opposite was also severed. Both arms fell to the floor, one of flesh and the other of stone. And where they fell, they formed a cross, which the workmen realized was a divine sign that the Venus must never be destroyed. That's the legend. Don't go spreading it around. <laughs> we do know for sure that the Venus de Milo was acquired a little afterward by the Louvre, where it remains to this day for lovers of beauty to enjoy. My point is, in telling you this ghost story, that the church is not the creation of a mere human sculptor. It is a divine work created by God for his pleasure, for his glory, and for his purposes in the world, his most beautiful handiwork, that when all this beauty is gone around us, there is going to be the thing of the supreme beauty left, Christ's own body, his virgin bride. Its beauty is not to be broken for the benefit of countless other selfish souls. Just as we are to have a loving unity, so we are to be loving unity. We are to devote ourselves to the beautification of the bride with which beauty she is able to shine into the world. That here, among you, that we have neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, Parthian, Scythian, all one in Christ Jesus. Christ is all and is in all. His love in us, transforming us together, leaping over those divides that divide the world.
day by day, breaking bread with joy in their hearts, the early church found the secret not only to joy themselves, but to a powerful witness in the world. And this glory, Jesus prays, the glory that you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the God of love, and when we see the cross of our Lord Jesus, we can find that that love has been poured out for us, not only poured out in our hearts, but poured out in that most remarkable way, a love that will not let us go, that pursues us, and despite our rebuffs, love that never gives up, relentless. Oh Lord, we pray that this same love, that the world indeed is in so many ways waiting to see, by your appointment, may this love more and more transform your people. That whatever this may mean for us in personal circumstances and opportunities, we pray that in a thousand different ways we might demonstrate this supernatural, this loving, this powerful unity throughout the world and even here among us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.